To continue our discussion on the royal priesthood, we were in the book of Hebrews, the seventh chapter, and as I mentioned before, the reference to the book of Hebrews is a reference to the sons of Abraham. So this, this letter called Hebrews is being written to the Jews. And in chapter 6 and 7, Jesus is identified as the high priest forever of the order of Melchizedek. The character we meet in Genesis, the 14th chapter, and he is referenced here in significant reference in Hebrews 7, Hebrews 6 and 7. And the perspective is this that Abraham gave a tenth of the spoils uh, of the battle from, of the kings that is referenced in, referenced in Genesis 14, gives a tenth to Abraham. And we are shown that beyond all contradiction, verse 7 of Hebrews 7, beyond all contradiction, the lesser, who is Abraham, is blessed by the greater, by the better. So even Abraham, the recipient of the promise, and we were talking about what the promise was from uh, Genesis uh, 22, where God told Abraham that in his seed he would make of him a great nation, and in his seed he would bless all the nations of the earth. He's the recipient of this promise, Abraham is. Enormously important, and he tithes to Melchizedek. And Hebrews, the letter to the descendants of Abraham, identifies that Melchizedek is greater than Abraham and, and says that the reason uh, Abraham tithes to him is because he is the superior to Abraham in this covenantal order. Let's go on where he says, mortal men receive tithes, verse 8, Hebrews 7, 8, but there he receives them of whom it is witnessed that he lives. And then goes on to say, even Levi, who receives tithes from his brethren, paid tithes through Abraham, so to speak. In other words, because whatever Abraham did attenuates to whoever is in the loins of Abraham, who has yet to be born, Levi is the grandson, or rather the great-grandson, he's one of the twelve sons of Jacob, Abraham has as his son Isaac, Isaac has as Abraham's grandson uh, Jacob, Jacob has twelve sons including Levi as the great-grandsons of Abraham and it is out of this, these twelve then that the nation would be formed. So, and, and the law would be given 430 years later. So the scriptures are saying that 
the superiority of Melchizedek over Levi is that Levi, the priest of the law from Sinai, inclusive of the Ten Commandments and the Book of the Law, those priests, including Levi as the high priest of that order, would Levi as the priest after whom that order is named, he would then tithe, he would have been designated to have tithe to Melchizedek because he was yet to be born out of the lineage of Abraham. That's the point. For he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. That's the point. That Levi was still unborn out of the seed of Abraham, who was here in this designated as his father, when Melchizedek met him. Therefore, if perfection were through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there be that another priest should arise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be called according to the order of Aaron. Aaron is the first high priest of the Levitical order. Now, here's the point I made earlier. For the priesthood being changed of necessity, there's also a change of the law. So if you change the priesthood, you have to change the law. That brings us squarely into this question. When was the priesthood of Melchizedek established and what was the law of which this priesthood was the attending administration? We know when the law of Sinai, uh, we know when the law of Levi, uh, we know when the law of which Levi became the high priest, although it was named after Levi, of which Aaron was the first high priest. We know when that was established. That was established at Mount Sinai. And Moses was the one to whom the law was given in the form of Ten Commandments and the Book of the Law. And it established the nation of Israel from that point on going forward. Okay? So there was clearly a priesthood identifiable at that point as the priesthood of uh, Levi and the first of the high priest of this order would be Aaron, Moses' brother. When was the order of Melchizedek established? Hmm. Because Abraham, you see, is 430 years before the law. So when was, when was this priesthood established? Keeping in mind that you have to have, you must have a law, actually what the term here references is a covenant. You must have a covenant that requires a priesthood. Priesthoods are only valid if there is an attendant covenant. 
if you have a priesthood but you don't have a covenant, then the, the priests are just priests at large. There's no basis for their priesthood. What determines the relevance of a priesthood? An existing covenant. Without a covenant, there is no need for a priesthood. Priesthood isn't just guys running around in robes. What gives a priesthood any standing, any authority, any form or any function is an existing law, an existing covenant. Now, here is an interesting passage from the book of Galatians. Let's start at verse 15 because it begins to chip away at the question, when was the covenant that empowered Melchizedek, when was that created? All right, here's for clue number one. Brethren, I speak to, I'm speaking in the manner of men, the writer of Galatians, as Paul says. Though it is only a man's covenant, yet if it is confirmed, no one annuls or adds to it. In other words, even if men make covenants amongst themselves, if these covenants are duly executed, you cannot go back ex post facto and add to them or or, or dis, dis, dissolve them. If they're executed according to the proper formalities, they're binding and they cannot be unilaterally altered. That's what he's saying, all right? Now, going on verse 16, now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He does not say, and to seeds as of many, but as of one. And he quotes from Genesis 22, and to your seed. That's the language God used when giving the promise to Abraham, and to your seed, who is Christ. And this I say, that the law from Mount Sinai, the law which was 430 years later cannot annul the covenant that was confirmed before by God in Christ. So 430 years before Sinai, God gave promises to Abraham that came out of an existing covenant. So when was that covenant established? Because what Melchizedek does as a priest of God Most High is Melchizedek confirms to Abraham confirms to Abraham 
that he is duly appointed as the beneficial heir of promises that came out of an existing covenant. So the point is, the covenant was not established when Abraham received the promise. The covenant was established before and it created the promise that was waiting for the recipient to come so the promise could be given to him. That's what it's saying. And 430 years before the law, God had already given the promise that came out of that covenant. We haven't determined when the covenant was established, but rather that the promise was trailing, waiting for the recipient of the promise. God gave that promise to Abraham and Melchizedek in the role involved in Genesis 14, Melchizedek confirmed to Abraham that he was the recipient and beneficial heir of the promise that came out of that pre-existing covenant. Why does he confirm it with bread and wine? What is bread and wine? What are they symbolic of? Of course, the body and blood of Christ. We've already seen at the very end of Hebrews chapter 6 that there is a high priest of this covenant who, though he comes later in time than either Melchizedek or Abraham, he is the high priest. So, when did this original covenant? take place. But before we leave it, here is what it says, and to your seed who is Christ, verse 17, this is Galatians 3, and this I say that the law, the law, Mount Sinai, Ten Commandments, which was 430 years later, cannot annul the covenant that was confirmed before by God and thus do away with the promise. If the inheritance is of the law, it is no longer of promise. In other words, if the inheritance came by obeying the law, then it's not a promise, it's a quid pro quo. You do this and you're entitled to this. Right? But it's not that. But God gave it to Abraham by promise. In other words, it wasn't anything Abraham had to do to earn it. So, when was this covenant enacted? Well, the clue to it is pretty apparent. In the book of Revelation, we are introduced to Christ in this way. He's the Lamb, uh, chapter 6 of the book of Revelation, where the Lamb is being glorified and praised in heaven. And this phrase is used to define him. The Lamb slain from the foundations of 
the earth. Hmm. This was confirmed by John the Baptist who 40 days after he had baptized Jesus and seen the Holy Spirit descend on him in the form of a dove and heard the voice of God saying, This is my beloved Son whom I am well pleased. 41 days later from that event when Jesus was passing by where John was baptizing, John saw him again and said, Look, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And he told his audience, I would not have known him except that the one who sent me to baptize told me that the one on whom I see the Holy Spirit descend and remain, he it is whose shoes you are not worthy to untie. He is the Lamb of God. But the key phrase is the Lamb slain from the foundations of the world. When was that? Well, before heaven and earth, before the heavens and the earth were created. From before God stretched out, as he said in the book of Job, stretched out the foundations upon nothing. Where were you? he asked Job when I stretched out the foundations of the earth upon nothing. So this price was paid before man was created, before the earth was called out of the mind of God into existence. A price was paid, the lamb was slain. He would actually be slain in time which would be ratification of this covenant pre-existent but the covenant itself was struck before the foundations of the earth. Now, if this is so, who are the parties to the covenant? If it's before the foundations of the earth, one thing we know for sure is Man was not a part of it. Why? Simple, he wasn't created yet. So who then were the parts of it? Well, we know one of the parties. He's the one who paid the price. The Lord Jesus Christ in pre-creation existed as the Word. In the beginning was the Word, John says in John 1. The Word was with God, the Word was God. Hmm? Now, here is something about that covenant from Hebrews chapter 6. Verse 13 says, For when God made a promise, when God made a promise to Abraham, It doesn't say God made a covenant with Abraham. God did make a covenant with Abraham. It's called the covenant of circumcision. And that covenant, you see, required the removal of the foreskin of the males because the picture was that the flesh, the foreskin being designated as the flesh, should not touch the holy seed 
at the point of conception. That's the meaning of the covenant of circumcision. That the one who would come out of this, though he would come out of the body of Abraham, he would not be defined according to the flesh. That's why a descendant of Abraham as the husband of Mary was not the one from whom the seed that produced the person of Jesus of Nazareth came. The fulfillment of the covenant that the flesh would not touch the seed was fulfilled in Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus the Christ. He is the Son of God, He's not a Son according to the flesh. Right? But let's go back. When God made a promise to Abraham, well, if Abraham was not a covenantal, uh, was not in a covenant with God, what is the meaning of the word promise? Ah, simple. The covenantors, parties A and B, party of the first part, party of the second part, established a covenant that created an estate. The promise of that estate was to be given to somebody and the beneficial heir of that promise was Abraham. But the covenantors, covenantors had to be equals because you never swore an oath to someone but that it made you an equal to that person, at least in regards to the transaction. Who is the equal of God? Who might enter into a covenant with God? The promise that God gave to Abraham was then enacted through a covenant because there was an existing overarching agreement and this subsequent covenant was simply the qualifier for the promise. It's like this, if a husband and wife enter into wills, they establish wills to distribute their estate, who are the beneficial heirs of the estate? Their children. What part do they play in creating the covenant? None. None. What is their place in the covenant between the husband and the wife? Their place is simply that they are the heirs of the promise. In fact, it is because they are anticipated that the husband and wife will make wills to distribute their estate to their heirs. Until the children arrive, the entire estate is held in the language of the will and the language of the will is the promise to the heirs when they shall arrive. What do they have to do to qualify? Well, it's pretty exclusive. They have to be born of the husband or wife, the husband and wife, or alternatively adopted 
by them as their heirs. So any, any uh, act that would qualify would make the heirs of the promise a distinct class of people as distinguished from everybody else. So when God gave a promise to Abraham, the promise was enacted through the act of circumcision. And the reason God was angry at Abraham was if, if in fact the heirs were not circumcised, they would not be part of the covenant. That's why Moses uh, circumcised his sons by a Midianite woman so that they might be part of the beneficial heirs, the class of heirs of this promise. I'm getting into deep waters here, meaning I'm going very deep and very far in explaining to you the existence of a pre-creation covenant. So let me wrap it up here now with verse 13. When God made a promise, so God gave a promise to Abraham, that promise was to designate Abraham as the beneficial heir of the covenant that previously existed because that's what we were trying to track down when we asked the question at the beginning, when was the covenant of which Abraham was the heir, when was that established that required the priesthood of Melchizedek as the administration? When he, because, let's read from verse 13, for when God made a promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, I will bless you, and multiplying, I will multiply you. And so, after he had patiently waited, he obtained the promise. For men swear by someone greater, and the oath is a confirmation of what is promised and puts an end to all dispute. Thus God, determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of what was promised, the immutability of the promise, he confirmed it with an oath, so that by these two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have taken hold of this hope may be greatly encouraged." What is he saying? He's saying when God enacted this covenant, he swore on oath to himself. So who is God and who is God? There's God the Son, who is the Lamb. There's God the Father, who is requiring the sacrifice of the Lamb. The covenant is between God and God and it's established before God ever created the earth, therefore before God ever created man. So when man was born, the first of mankind would be a son of God and the first of mankind would be the first priest in the order of Melchizedek. That priest was Adam. When we come back, we'll look at other priests in this order, 
and we'll see how the tithe fits within this pre-existing order of royal priests. Different from the order of Levi where only one tribe was the priest. It's a very complex study but the tithe is not a small matter. It is actively connected to the economy of the seventh day wherein we enter again into the promise of sonship. I'm Sam Solon. I hope you're blessed by these discussions. Continue to study with me. I'll talk to you then. Bye-bye.